0: We are today in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. You can turn there. We've been making our way through this book. Today's message, if you will, is Paul defends himself before Agrippa. Uh, And this is going to be part one of his defense before uh, this king, this man that was referred to as a king and also his wife, Bernice. And since chapter 21, really since about chapter 16 or so, We've been following the life of this man, the Apostle Paul. And since chapter 21, there's been sort of this event after event after event. There's really no break in the story. It's just this continuing saga that is developing uh, here with the Apostle Paul. Now, you may recall that it was in chapter 21 that Paul ended his third missionary journey, mostly to the area of uh, southeastern Europe, uh, a little bit of kind of Western Asia there, what we call today Turkey or Asia Minor, Uh, and Paul ended that trip and made his way back to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, his goal, we we saw that, it was to bring a gift um, for the Christian church that was struggling there. Interesting, gathering with all Gentile church people primarily, he collected a gift for the Jewish Christian community that was in Jerusalem that had gone through a famine and some other financial difficulties and was struggling. And so he brought a gift from one part of the body to the other. Paul also, you may recall, in Jerusalem wanted to go to the temple and celebrate the feast. And he did. And unfortunately, humanly speaking, things didn't go very well for the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. As many times he was pulled and tugged as if they would tear him apart, uh, screamed at, yelled at, threatened with death, uh, encouraged the leaders to kill him, and it began the the numerous trials, we'll call them trials, they're not all officially a trial in the sense of before a court, but it began all of these uh, appearances before officials where Paul would have to defend himself. So in chapter 21, we saw that he went before the Roman Tribune. That was the military commander there in charge of Jerusalem. He had to go before him and answer some questions. A little later in that chapter, he was brought before the Jewish people, the people of Jerusalem, and had to defend himself and make his case That didn't go so well, so he was brought back into the barracks again before the tribune, the commander, the military commander. You remember in that instance, they uh, strapped him down over a log where they were going to flog him. That was the trial. They were going to find out, what did you do and why does everyone hate you? And we'll beat you until you tell us. We looked at that in chapter 22. In chapter 23, he's back before the Jewish council officially, not just the people, but particularly or specifically in front of the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he had to defend himself there. And then eventually, a plot was discovered that they were trying to ambush Paul as he traveled from one place to the other, and they were going to kill him. And the Tribune decided, i got to get this man out of this particular city. My primary responsibility is to maintain order in this city. And this guy is not making that possible. And he sends him to the Roman seat of government. Not the Jewish seat of government, which was in Jerusalem, but the Roman seat of government, the people that were politically in charge in the city of Caesarea. And there, and this is all chapter 21 to 26, there Paul met uh, numerous times before a guy named Felix, the Roman governor, and then when he was replaced, a guy named Festus. And it was two weeks ago when we were last together that Paul, we looked at that trial before the man Festus. You remember he went before him on two occasions. You remember Festus was basically a good guy, trying to do the right thing in this situation, but that Festus was sort of a secular Roman pagan. Pagan being the name of their religion, capital P. Kind of like a person who grew up, yeah, I know some things about religion, but not much, didn't take it very seriously. And so he had no ability to wrap his hands around that the Jews hated Paul so much and they didn't like what Paul had to say and Paul didn't like what they had to say and there was just I I don't get it, I don't understand why this is that important to you people, is kind of how Festus was responding in those circumstances. And so not knowing exactly what to do, it seems like he tries to get the case just off of his docket. And hey, Paul, how would you like to go to Jerusalem and have a trial there? And this way I'm out of it. And of course, you remember Paul probably realizing if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me along the way. Paul said, no, I'm not going anywhere else. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And if you're not going to weigh in on this as the Roman governor, then I appeal to Caesar. Which, again, sounds like crazy. Like It's not like I'm going to say, well, I appeal to the president. Let him decide. Like, like You can't do that. But in Rome, you could. If you were a Roman citizen and you felt you weren't getting justice at the lower levels of society, you could appeal to Caesar. And so Paul used his citizenship card and did that, appeals to Caesar, and now he's got to be sent there. So done for Festus? No. You may recall. Festus has to send a reason with Paul why I couldn't decide the case and we had to take up your busy time, Mr. Caesar. But he doesn't have a reason. And a good reason can't be, well, some people don't like him. Right? Everybody agrees? That's not a good enough reason to bother the Caesar. And so uh, he decides to have another trial or hearing, we will say. And that is going to bring us to where we left off, which is the beginning of chapter 26. This is going to be a hearing before a guy who did have a lot of understanding of the Jewish people, a man by the name of Agrippa. Now remember, Agrippa is sort of like a family name, and so you you see Herod Agrippa, um, the first Herod Agrippa the second. There was Herod the Great. There was Herod Antipas. Herod is sort of this family name slash title. A number of people use the name Agrippa as well. This is the fellow that we refer to in history as Herod Agrippa the second, and he was a guy who had quite a bit of interest in the Jews. Uh, He was in charge of the temple, basically, for the Romans, as well as a small little province actually outside of the area of Jerusalem. So he knew the Jewish people. He knew what they were about. He comes to Caesarea, where Festus is. Festus, commiserating or whatever, saying, like, I don't know what's going on. It's crazy. I got these people. And he says, well, let me run it by me. Let me see if I can help you. And Festus did that. And he said, all right, we're going to have a trial or a hearing, with this guy, Paul, so that uh, you can help me. You can give me something to write. Now, look at verse chapter 25, verse 23. It says, now, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's his wife, they came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Now, when we were together a couple of weeks ago, I, I tried to paint this picture of this great pump. And you can picture folks blowing their horns and banging their drums and people coming in with their banners and their flags. And now, entering is Herod Agrippa. And everyone goes crazy and cheers or whatever. And now, his lovely wife, Bernice. (laughs) You know, et cetera. And all of this excitement. And the people come in and nothing happens until they sit down in their spot. And you know, they let it just hang in the air. And then the next wonderful official comes in. And all of the officials are gathered. All of the people of Caesarea are gathered. They have these large meeting spaces there. You can see them um, in archaeology today. If you go there, you can see they were dug up and all that kind of stuff. And then all of that sort of settles down. And Festus says, all right, bring in the prisoner. And here comes this guy in in chains of some sorts. He tells us that he's shackled. He's been in jail for years. He's got all this dirty clothes on, no doubt, or something like that. And he comes, and he's brought in, and this pitiful-looking individual. No, they say that Paul was very skinny, very uh, like a small, frail individual and all of that. And they plop him down right in the midst, the midst of all this greatness. And it's like, oh, look at a poor fella. And yet, as we'll see today, and we'll see it definitely next week when we come together, Paul is not, is not the one on trial here. Because Paul, he takes over when he starts to talk. And I believe the Holy Spirit begins to move through him. And it's the people that he is talking to that are on trial. And he begins to call out people that he is talking to, asking them for a response to what it is that he is saying. And God had fulfilled what God had said he would do in Paul's life at his very calling. He said, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to testify before kings. This message that I'm going to give to you. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And after 30 years, uh, sometimes ministering in obscurity, and almost all the time ministering in difficulty, here now Paul finds himself in chains, but his words aren't chained. And he's able to proclaim the message of the truth to the people that he is listening to so that they will be without excuse. God is faithful to do that. All of humanity will be without excuse when all of humanity, one by one, appears before God. What did you do with my son? I gave you ample opportunity. We know that God in his faithfulness will do that, and he's doing that here with these people through the apostle Paul. One person said it this way. He said, we have an enslaved king and an enthroned prisoner, and that's Paul. Paul's really the one that is dominating this situation. So let's read, starting in chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Okay, Paul knows this man. Agrippa and Paul, excuse me, Festus and Paul didn't seem like they had ever had any interactions or knew anything of one another. But Paul is aware of who this Agrippa fella is and what this Agrippa fella's background has been. And he says, I'm grateful for the opportunity to present my case to you. So interesting how Paul sees this as an opportunity. He's in chains. He's been in prison for months, and it's going to be years, ultimately, that he's in prison. Two years already, I think it is and yet he sees this as an opportunity because he can testify of who God is and what God had done in his life. He says that, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you that I speak. Now, part of that has to do with the fact not just that he gets to share the message, but that Agrippa is a guy he knows, he'll say it, that understands these things. You're familiar with some of these things. The other guy, Festus, he just looked at me dumbfounded, whenever we talked, and he looked at the other people, dumbfounded, he didn't get it, but I know Agrippa, you know, you're aware of these things, you know about the customs and the controversies uh, amongst the Jews, and he says, so I'm happy to have the opportunity to explain myself and these things to the king, so that you can weigh on them as well, for this letter that Festus wants to write. Now, it will become clear that Paul is delighted about the opportunity to share the gospel. And I think that's his primary uh, enthusiasm here. And he's going to do that by sharing his story. And we've talked a little bit about that, uh, about using your testimony, your story of what God has done in your life as an opportunity to communicate to other people what God can do in their life. You have the ability to communicate a message of hope because it's not just some words that are on a paper. And believe me, I believe the scripture is far more important than anything, any of my stories. But your life puts the paper, like, to life. Does that make sense? Put some feed on it. People would say, you know what? If that guy, then what about me? And so Paul is going to share his story. This is not the first time. If you've been with us in Acts now, this is the third time that we have looked at how Paul came to know Jesus Christ. We find it in Acts chapter 9, we find it in Acts chapter 22, here in Acts chapter 26. Paul will also reference his story in the book of 1 Timothy and in the book of Philippians. Paul's story was important to him. And so Acts 9 is his actual conversion. Acts 22 is when he tells a Hebrew audience. And here now in Acts chapter 26, he tells a Gentile audience. And I find it really important, uh, or interesting at the very least, that Luke will write it out three times. It's like he has limited space. He's only written about some of the events over 30 years of the church, and yet he writes it out on three different occasions. Apparently, there was a reason why he felt it needed to be communicated. Now, what's interesting, I think, to note, in those three retellings of Paul's experience, particularly when you compare how he told it to the Jewish audience and how he told it to the Gentile audience, is what's interesting is there's slight variations in each one of those accounts. Now, that's not to say that Paul was changing his story, and it's not to say that his story contradicted. You said this back then, but now you're saying this. There's just different points of emphasis. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Different points of emphasis depending on the audience that Paul was speaking to. And I think that's very, very important because Paul was not a robot. And Paul's listeners weren't just some bland group of people that were in front of him. There were specific people with specific needs and desires and things that were going on inside of those specific people. And Paul, if you will, he tailored his message specifically to his listeners. And I think that's a really important thing to do. Paul, if you will, was following his own rule. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He was becoming all things to all people that he might by all means save some. And so here he uniquely presents the story of his experience in a way that is more likely to connect with his Gentile audience here in Caesarea and with Agrippa in particular. And I think that that should be both an encouragement to us and an exhortation to us that as we share our faith, and all of us should be sharing our faith, that as we're sharing our faith with others, that we do so in a way that is thoughtful, that is prayerful, that takes into consideration the person that you are speaking to. In fact, I would also say this, I think when you share your faith with another, you should begin by just listening, asking questions, getting a sense of who that person is and where they're coming from. Now, the easy thing to do is, well, no, I don't want any questions. I want to memorize my speech. I want to give that there. But see, what happens is when you begin to find out a little bit about the other person, and you begin to get a sense of the other person, then your script gets thrown out. And you've gone a whole new direction. And what do you need to do now? Boardwalk people. Oh, Lord, help me. Right? Those silent prayers that we throw up, God you got to give me the words to speak. And you've done your study and you've done your preparation and all that kind of stuff. But, Lord, Holy Spirit, you just got to do it. you got to work. Because our desire is not just to get our speech out. Our desire is to win people to the Lord. And so we need to know those people that we're communicating with. Anyhow, Paul, uh, notice he'll continue in verse 4. He says, Now my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul here, he's going to begin to recount to Agrippa uh, where he had been. And what I mean by that is what his life was before he came into relationship with God. So as you think about your story and your testimony and that which you want to communicate with other people, a place to begin is where were you before? How did you think before? Perhaps how did you act before? What was your life like before? Paul begins there, uh, before he came into relationship with God. Now, here's what I appreciate about the Apostle Paul, because a lot of times when we're sharing our stories, we'd, oh, I was a mean man. I used to be in a Harley Davidson club or something, and you know, and I used to kill kittens and all this stuff. Really? And you were twelve? Yup, yes, I was in that motorcycle. And, you know, we try and make it like we're the worst people in the world. Well, morally speaking, Paul was one of the best people in the world. And what I appreciate about the Apostle Paul here, he's talking to the Gentile community. Now, if you grew up a Gentile, you were probably a sinner. Well, everybody is a sinner. But it was just a part of the culture to be like an immoral individual. And so Paul is speaking to this immoral audience, and he doesn't play up his immorality himself he doesn't play up his badness he doesn't make up some stories or all this kind of stuff he's honest with them and I think that's so important because people can spot a phony and they can look at that and by the way if you're glorifying sin then I'm a little concerned about your you (laughs) just like no sin is nothing to glory in nothing good about it at all it put Christ on the cross We should be ashamed of our sin, if you will. And so Paul doesn't glory in his uh, or kind of play up this story that he was some kind of wicked sinner. He just is honest with them and tells them who they are. Now, he begins by calling attention to the fact that all that he is about to testify, he says, Agrippa, look, I'm about to tell you my story here. You can check all these facts if you want. With the Jews. If they're willing to be honest with you, they'll tell you that everything I'm about to tell you is true. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning is known uh, by all the Jews. You can verify anything you need to verify. He then adds in verse 5, they have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were very strict. They took the law and they added another 100 customs on top of every law that they came across. But So his point is, look, if, if they're honest with you, they can come down here and they can tell you that I've lived my life as an exemplary Jew up until these events that I'm about to tell you about. He says, he goes on in verse 6, he says, Now, however, I'm going to paraphrase it, I'm an outcast among those people. And he says, and the reason is because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, our fathers, that would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. So in Paul's heart and mind, even as a follower of Jesus, he felt that he had remained a faithful Jew. He had always felt he had never abandoned Judaism. And the reason here that he's making the case, he says, look, throughout the Old Testament, God made various covenants with the leaders of Israel. That's who Paul calls our fathers or the patriarchs. Throughout the Old Testament, God made covenants with our fathers. The principal covenant had to do with the promise of the hope of a Messiah. Would we all agree with that? Okay. And so Paul is saying, I am now on trial for that hope that a Messiah would come, I believe that he came and that he came in the person of Christ. He believed God said what he would do and now he's on trial. The second thing that Paul points to in these verses is found in 6 and 7 and it's the hope of the resurrection. He says that there, uh, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship and for this hope I am accused. Now, we wouldn't know it's the resurrection until you get to verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, I don't think he's addressing this to Agrippa. I, I do think much of this speech is addressed to Agrippa. If you look at the first verses, he calls him by name. But I wonder, here, here's how I picture this in my mind. Paul's standing there. He mentions this hope, uh, and people start making, like, funky faces or something. And Festus is like, I have no idea what you people are talking about. And the other Jews are kind of like, nah, this guy. And Paul, I think, is responding to that. And he says, why do you all think it's crazy about a resurrection? The Bible says it's going to happen, and I believe it actually happened. That's kind of the the feel that I get here. Paul continues on in verse 9, and he says, And I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I did in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, the Christians in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now that, that refers to the fact that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he authorized the people to put to death some of these Christians that were, in their mind, denying the, the Jewish faith. Verse 11, And I punished them often in all their synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even unto foreign cities. Paul's point, I was more passionate than perhaps any of these guys that are coming before me to accuse me, to hold on to the Jewish faith, to to defend the Jewish faith. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do these things. That is, I was convinced I was doing what God would have me to do by chasing Christians around and even putting some of them to death. He talks about how he got authority from the chief priest, no doubt, that he might uh, have the authority to go around and do these things. He talks about how he even went to foreign cities uh, to chase people down. That's pretty committed. You know, it's one thing you're sitting in your city and, you know, you see this person over here and they're annoying and you deal with it. But to get on like a bus and to go to some other city, or in his case, to walk or ride some kind of an animal of sorts, to go all the way up to the city of Damascus, I think 150 miles away or something like that Um, this is a pretty committed guy his point Agrippa I was a very different man at one time and that's probably your story as well you didn't chase people around you didn't kill them uh, or whatever it might be but you were likely a very different man or woman at one point in your life that's where your story can begin now Paul as I said earlier he doesn't glory in his past Right, and talk about all the kittens he killed and the horrible things that he did and make up some story. But at the same time, notice, Paul doesn't shy away from his past as well. Paul's past was what it was. It was his past. He didn't hide from it. He didn't embellish it. He just presented it. And I think a, a sweet thing that we discover, and I think this is important, particularly maybe those that come out of a little bit of a background, in our society where people are oh, well, you, you were bad, or whatever. I think sometimes we want to hide from our past and, and those things. Now I'm a good Christian. I can't let anybody find out I did the kinds of things that I used to do. We have video. We know what you did. <laughs> but a, a sweet thing that we discover as we study the Scripture is that, the, particularly in the New Testament, those great characters of the New Testament, particularly those that uh, are chronicled or they've written books or whatever it might be, They were never afraid to confess what they had once been. And so Mark, for instance, who writes the gospel, he will tell how he failed the Lord and he ran away naked at the arrest of Jesus. Peter will tell of how he denied the Lord. James and John, they will recount how they missed the mark in attempting to serve God and be his representative. Can we call down fire to destroy the people we were witnessing to, they ask You see these examples again and again. Paul here is an example of it. And rather attempting to hide their past, these men weren't afraid to point to their past as a living example of the changing power of Jesus Christ. There's a story that's told of a 19th century preacher. His name was Brownlow North. Anybody know? Great, I can make it up. Brownlow North's life verse. He said he had a life verse. A lot of us do. It was Psalm chapter 32. I think we read that, sang that today, didn't we? We read it today. Brownlow North, he said, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now, according to the stories that were told about North, there were a lot of transgressions and a lot of sins that needed to be forgiven and covered in this man's life. For the first 44 years of his life, as his biography tells us, He was, quote, an irresponsible and faultless aristocrat with a reputation for dissipation and excess. That means he was a sinner. (laughs) But eventually, God got a hold of his heart, 44 years of age. And North was changed. And he became an effective and prominent preacher in the mid to late 1800s in England. And one day as North entered the building where he was about to preach, Somebody, crowd's like, hi, wow, so nice to have you. Thank for being here. Somebody slipped a note into his hand, and it carried a warning on it. It said this. It said, Brownlow North, you miserable hypocrite. Do you remember what took place on such and such a date and your part in it? And then on such and such a date and again on such and such a date. And they listed all these things and the date and time that he had done those things. Now, the complete details of what did happen, they wrote out, and they were indeed uh, messy. And then the note ended, now you wretched hypocrite, you know that every word of this letter is true. Will you, after reading it, dare go into that pulpit and rant and rave and preach what you call to be the gospel? Now, North's past was about to be exposed. The guy said that in the letter. If you you go up there, I'm going to tell everybody what you did. And so his past was about to be exposed, and we're told that it really hit him. He was embarrassed by the whole thing, and what should I do, and and all this kind of stuff. But rather than allowing it to prevent him from speaking, he took the letter, he shoved it into his his coat pocket, and when the time came for him to speak, he began with a Bible verse. And he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then North, he paused, and it says, with deep feeling, he finished reading the verse. He was breaking up with tears. He says, and this is what Paul wrote, but obviously North is applying it to himself. He said, of whom I am the chief. And then he began to address the crowd, and he says, my friends, when I entered this building tonight, a letter was put into my hands. I don't know who the writer was, but he is evidently one who knows a great deal about my past. He said, the letter refers to three distinct occasions in which it charges me with participating in depraved behavior. He said, I won't pollute your ears by quoting the details, but the writer concludes with this painful communication, as I said earlier, now you wretched hypocrite, you know that every word of this letter is true, and will you dare to get into the pulpit to preach? North went on, he looked at his crowd. He said, dear friends, There are three things I have to say about this letter. First, it's all true. He said, every word of it is true. He said, would to God that I could deny the charges that it makes. Would to God that I could undo the past. But that's not even possible for God himself. God knows it's true, and I confess with sorrow and shame that it's true. Second thing he said that I have to say is that it's all forgiven. God knows it's forgiven. And I know that it's forgiven. And third, the third thing I have to say is this. For Jesus Christ's sake, that if God can forgive the sins of a sinner like Brownlow North, then there's not a sinner in the world too great for God to forgive him of all of his sins. Notice what North does. North doesn't hide from his past, but he gloried in his past. And he did so in the sense that he knew that his past having been cleansed by God, magnified the grace of God, that the grace of God could even save a sinner such as him. And that's what Paul is repeatedly doing as he, uh, in this particular chapter, this is who I was, but this is what God did. That's who I was, he says. Now look at verse 12, he's going to transition and he's going to talk about his encounter with God, how God changed his life. Starting in verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. in me so Paul's going to talk about his conversion and his commissioning this is what God had sent me to now again look at verse 11 we see there that he traveled to foreign cities that he did so with raging fury it talks about him traveling during the noonday remember the light and it was brighter than the noonday sun that they were experiencing here most people didn't travel during the noon at noontime it's too hot And so they would stop, take a little break, and when it got a little cooler, they would go again. And you can see just how driven Paul is, that through the hot sun, he's going to go, when everybody else would stop. And it was during one of those journeys to the city of Damascus that we have this account. Verse 12 tells us that. This account here in Acts 26, same as Acts 9, same as Acts 22, this is the fullest account of Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. And something happened on that day, on that road, that changed Paul completely. Now, his contemporaries doubted that. Even early on, some of the church doubted that and were afraid to gather with him until Barnabas came alongside and said, no, this is a real brother in the Lord. He's not trying to trick you. He's not some undercover agent trying to get into our church to find out who we all are so he can kill us. God changed him. But some of his contemporaries doubted that. Even some people today doubt it. And they'll say things like, Paul, you know, he just saw where the world was going. And, you know, it wasn't with Judaism, it was with Like That's just silly. Right? And the, some people will doubt that it had changed. But you can't argue with the remarkable change that took place in this man's life, not just over a weekend, but at this point for over 30 years. Paul had gone from a hater of Jesus Christ and a bitter persecutor of Christians And he had become a humble Christian himself, willing to even die for Jesus Christ. And he did it, not just for a weekend, but for 30 years. He begins to tell his story. He says in verse 13 that he was knocked to the ground. Some people think a horse, but we're never told it was a horse that he was on. But that he was knocked down to the ground by a light that had shone from heaven and shone all around him. Verse 14 tells us that he heard a voice. Notice in the Hebrew language. He heard a voice call out to him. And the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting thing here. Paul immediately knows it is the Lord. He says, who are you, Lord? He immediately knows that it's the Lord that has spoken to him. But he does not yet understand that Jesus is the Lord. And, he's, and as far as Paul's thinking, I'm not persecuting God. He knows it's God but I'm not persecuting God. I'm going out and persecuting other people for God. And so he asked this question, well, who are you? What's your name? And the Lord will answer him and he'll say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He says to him though, before that, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now that's a familiar phrase. A lot of us know that. Uh, this is actually the first time that that phrase appears in the retelling of Paul's story. We didn't learn that in Acts 9. We didn't see that in Acts 22. And so we would never know it if it wasn't mentioned here in Acts chapter 26. A lot of us may not be familiar with what a goad is. A goad was a long staff or stick. A farmer would usually carry it. And on the end of it, it had a sharpened edge of some or a point that kind of came off of it. And it was used to prod an animal, an ox of some sorts, into submission. So the ox starts going this way. You give it a little poke. And, oh, I don't want to go that way. And it gets back to where it needs to. Oftentimes, the goad was kept right behind the the ox or the oxen uh, because right behind the oxen would be the cart that they were were carrying or pulling. And the the oxen wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to do that, right? (laughs) And so it would kick against the cart that was behind it. But they put these sharp goads there so that when it would kick, it would hit the point. And what's the ox going to do soon enough? Stop kicking. And so because it is hard for them to kick against the goats. Here, the Lord, speaking to Paul, says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's been hard for you, or it is hard for you, to kick against the goats. There was something that was pricking the apostle Paul prior to him being the Apostle Paul, when his name was Saul the rabbi, there was something that was pricking him. Even as he was running around and persecuting people and putting him in jail and even having them killed and forcing them to blaspheme, there was something that was pricking his conscience. His conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit was at work in him. Now, Paul never shared this before. He chooses to share it here because Paul would tailor his, his message to the audience that was before him. That causes me to wonder if Agrippa was also struggling with a pricking. Because he knew a lot about these things. And yet he had never responded to them. As far as we know, he never did respond to them. And yet Paul brings it up here. And so I wonder if Agrippa had been wrestling. And Paul knows that and he makes mention of it. Something was pricking the Apostle Paul. Some people speculate That it was the face of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. And the reason why Stephen was put to death was because Paul stood there and gave the people the authority. Yes, you can stone him to death. And it tells us that Stephen, he looked up into the heavens and he saw the Lord. And his face, it shined. It radiated. And some people speculate, you know, that's the thing that kept coming to Paul. That is, he looked at this man that was being put to death for this belief that Paul thought was fake, but this man obviously believed it. Man, I wish I had that kind of faith. I wish I believed like that. I'll just destroy that faith and it'll go away. And it doesn't go away, does it? The thinking, the feelings that are inside of you. Whatever it may have been, Paul had an uneasy heart. He says, who are you, Lord? The Lord says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Those words changed Paul's world. Now, that in and of itself is not the gospel message that we might want to share, but those words changed Paul's world because in those words, Paul realized that Jesus was alive and not dead because he's here talking to me. He's alive and not dead. Paul also understood with those words that Jesus reigned in glory. Remember, he came in glory uh, with the, the light shining brighter than the noonday. Jesus was wrapped in that, so to speak. The Jewish belief was if a man is crucified, that man, such a man was cursed. Such a man was damned in shame. And yet here is Jesus reigning in his glory. That changed in Paul's thinking in that instant. And Paul also realized that all that work that he was doing that he thought was for God was actually against God, that he was actually persecuting Jesus. And in doing so, he was persecuting the Lord. In an instant, Paul realized that he had been entirely wrong about Jesus. And Paul's heart was converted. In that moment, that second there, Paul became a believer. And though Paul didn't have a a life of immorality— that he needed to repent of. He did have to repent of his sin of misguided zeal. And he did have to repent of his wrong ideas about God and of Jesus. And what Paul could have done is he was faced with truth. He could have dug in his heels. He could have said, look, I've gone too far now. I can't turn back now. Or, which a lot of people do, I know what you're saying is true, but I've gone too far. I'm already 50. I'm already 40. I'm already 30 years old. I can't change. Can't turn back now. Or Paul could admit that he was terribly misguided and wrong and that he desperately needed to change. And you know the story, Paul chose the latter. And he submitted to what God was doing in his heart. Verse 16 goes on. It says, rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. He says, I I have a job for you. I'm commissioning you for a particular work. He says there in that verse that he appointed him as a servant and as a witness to the things that he had seen. Now, a witness. Think of a court of law. You don't have to be an expert. They have expert witnesses, but you know, you're know, you called in to give your testimony. You just come in and say what you've saw and heard. If you try to say, and this is what I think about that. Just keep to the facts, ma'am, sir. Just what have you seen What have you heard? Every one of us can do that. This is who I was. This is how I came to know the Lord. This is how he's changed my life going forward. I got nothing more to tell you. That's what God did in my life. That's what Paul's doing here. The second word, the first word again was uh, the word witness. The second word, in my version, it says a servant. Maybe your version uses the word minister. A lot of times when we think of minister, we think of, you know, official guy with the collar and all that kind of stuff. Um, The word minister, it just means servant, okay? So that's why some versions translate it as servant, which I think is good. The word that is actually used here is a Greek word that was used to describe an under rower. If you're a little bit older and you watch the Ben-Hur movies, some of you out there, you know what an under rower is? Let's show them what an under rower is for the young people there, Keep that. Does anyone under 30 know who that man is? You're not. You're like way over 30. <laughs> that's Charlton Heston. That's Moses, right from the movies and all of that. Well, he was in another one of those awesome movies that was called Ben Hur, uh, some rich guy or whatever, famous guy, and he got became a slave. It's a pretty cool story, uh, and that's what the Underoaks did. So this is a group of men, 300 of them, or whatever, that are in the hull of a ship with the oars that are coming out a hole, you know, just above the water line, and they're rowing. They're not up on the, on the deck, they're not taking in the sun, they're not playing in the, the pool or at the buffet or any of these kinds of things. They're the guys that are just rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing. They're unseen, they're underground essentially here under the water, they're unnoticed, they're unapplauded, they don't come out at the end and, hey, thanks so much for your service, thank you so much for your service, thank you, I couldn't have got here without you. Nobody even pays attention to them. They are a servant, they're a minister, and that's what Paul was being called to. I want to make you, Paul, you rise to your feet, go. I need you to be my witness and my slave, my servant. You're going to go places that you probably don't want to go. you're going to do things you probably don't want to go do, but you're going to do that for me. And now, if that's your calling, how do you feel about that <laughs> Can we talk about it? Well, I I see where you're starting. Now, let me give you my offer. You know, we'll we'll meet in the middle here. Paul's not doing any of that stuff. Paul just jumps to it. That's what we're called to do, folks. We want to be great people. We want everyone to know our names. We want people to at least pat us on the back, congratulate us, say, couldn't have been done without you. We're all called to be under rowers. There you go. Do with that as you will. And specifically amongst the Gentiles, it says in verse 17, delivering from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Again, doesn't make sense. If Paul put in his resume, he should have been hired to go to the Jews. He knew the Jews. He knew all about the Jews. Everybody, all the Jews knew him. That's who he should have gone to. But God takes this man and he sends him to a place of his weakness so that God would be the one who, that gets the glory and get the honor. And Paul would have to be dependent on God to do that. Speaking to the Gentile audience, he says, uh, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. You remember back in in, uh, Acts chapter 22, when he was speaking to the Jews, he said the word Gentiles, and everybody freaked out. You guys remember that, Uh, that little story there? Here, nobody freaks out. There was all Jews that were listening. We hate Gentiles. Don't even mention Gentiles. Certainly don't tell us that God sent you to them. Here, though, nobody cuts them off because they're all Gentiles. They're like, oh, cool. Tell me more about how we sent you to us. I appreciate that. And then Paul says, and this is what God told me to do amongst them. This is very important. Verse 18. I'm going to end with this. Amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. What was Paul called to do? Paul was called to do five things. He was called to preach a message that would open their eyes. He was called to turn those people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And he gives us forgiveness of sins and a place among the sanctified. That's the gospel, summed all up. That's what God does in the lives of people. He opens our eyes. Why does he need to open our eyes? Because sin blinds us. It deceives us. It tricks us. It convinces our heart that this is correct when indeed it's not. Sin blinds people. And it has blinded each one of us. And many times it it continues to do so. It blinds us to our need for Jesus. It blinds us to the nature of of Jesus it blinds us to things like righteousness and judgment and so as you're interacting with people that don't know the Lord and you're just like what you're an idiot I don't say that but I think it (laughs) I can't believe you won't see this or you refuse to see this why are you so hard of heart there's a blindness you didn't know it before in some other area maybe the same area as them they don't know it now and they can't see it now if you have a friend that's physically blind Don't get mad at them because they can't see this or do that or handle this. You recognize that they can't see. Paul had been spiritually blind, but the Lord opened his eyes. Paul, The Lord caused him to believe. And that was now what he was being called to do in the lives of other people. It's what God has raised us up to do. Secondly, Paul says to turn them from darkness to light, that certainly is going to contribute to the blindness, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Paul was going to preach a message because in sin, we are in the grips of Satan. And some of you that have addictive type backgrounds, you know that for sure. You know that for certain, how the grip of that addiction can hold on you and you just feel like, I can't do anything about this. Well, sin is the same way. And you may be able to control and behavior modify and all those kinds of things, but there's still that sin that has a hold of you. Think about it with things that don't show themselves necessarily on the outside. Things like bitterness and unforgiveness that wrestle with you and hold on to you. And as much as you're trying to, you can't get rid of. Sin can grip us and it can bind us. But Paul said, or the Lord said to Paul, you're going to preach a message that will have the ability to free men from that which binds them. And how is that done? Jesus told us. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of God revealed to us in his holy word. And it's why we emphasize the word of God. We were singing that song, the song where he is, that one, I forget (laughs) the name of the song, but it begins, I don't remember the exact words, you know, do you feel the world is broken? I felt like yelling, yes, yes, I do. You know, but That wasn't the words up there, and I follow the words that are up there. Um, but there is like this heaviness that comes on us, and this message that is everywhere. And you get, we, we begin to get this impression that the whole world in, embraces this idea, and perhaps it does. I don't believe it actually is as many as it feels like it is. And then you go to the Word of God, and the Word of God shines light on that darkness, and the Word of God speaks truth into those lies, and you can just take a deep breath of it, like fresh air, and you take a deep breath of it, and you begin to walk in this world once more until it all lays back down on you again. And that's why we emphasize the study of the Word. We're not here to do story time. I was reluctant to share that story about Brownlow North because I knew it would take like three minutes to kind of get through it. When i not here to do story time, when i not here to my feelings and this is what I think and, you know, I, this is my idea. We're here for the word. And when we get together in small groups, we talk and we interact and we eat cookies and all that kind of stuff. But then we get around the word or at the very least a book that's teaching us the word. Our quiet times, we emphasize those on a daily basis. So significant. The word of God should know the truth. I promise I'm ending right here. Finally, the Lord said that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Brownlow North, that man I shared about, he knew the forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness from our past. And the message of the gospel is that, that God cleanses us and washes over us because of the work of his son on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. But even, it goes beyond that. Because you could look at it this way. All right, I'm going to hit a start over button for you. So, from this point on, you know, do your thing and do it right. Right? You see what I'm talking about? He goes on and he talks about this idea of being sanctified. The word there for sanctified, I believe that's it. Yep. He says, a place among those who are sanctified. The word there for sanctified is the same Greek word that is sometimes translated holy or holiness. And earlier, I think it's verse 11 uh, or verse 10, uh, when he says, I not only locked up many of the saints, that's the same word, the same root word there. So he's talking about being sanctified, he's talking about being holy, he's talking about being a saint. And so when I have been forgiven of my sins, I'm not just some sinner with a past that God forgave, he calls me a holy saint. And he calls you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a holy saint. He has made you to be something that you are not. And if you read the book of Ephesians, all of those things that God has done in our life are given to us in the beginning of those, that book. And then if you look at chapter 4, it basically begins with, now what? And the idea is, now walk in that. And you don't need to be bound by sin anymore because you're a saint of God. Now walk in that. You don't have to wrestle with these past sins of yours because you've been forgiven and you're now a saint of God. Now walk in that freedom. You understand where we're going here? And so Paul had the privilege of preaching that message all over the world. You and I, we have the privilege of preaching that message. And so today I I present this to you. If you are here and you have not yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul's relationship with Jesus Christ began when he saw Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you in this. If that's you, look to Jesus. We have some Bibles that are available. There are four books in our Bibles that specifically tell the account of his life. We call them the Gospels. Take one of those and begin to read through those Gospels. Look to Jesus and allow Jesus to reveal who he is to you. And if you want to talk a little bit further about it, we'll have some leaders that are up here afterwards, or even the friend that brought you can explain a little bit more so with you. But a relationship with God begins when we see Jesus face to face. And I encourage you in doing that. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I, I just think of uh, Brownlow North's message, and I, I know for a lot of us, many of us, the closer we come to you, the, rea- the realization we have of just how stained we actually were, the light just shines so much brighter, and it reveals all the impurities, and it reveals our great need. And so the Apostle Paul could write and refer to himself as the chief of sinners decades after he had become a christian because he was getting closer and closer to you and north realized it and lord i ask that you would cause each one of us here to realize it lord as we would draw nearer and nearer to you we would cling in a greater way to you lord we need you and we need the work of your cross we're grateful for your forgiveness if we confess our sin, you tell us you're faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, that you would call such as us holy saints of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what you have done. And Lord, we want to walk in that wonderful truth. And so Lord, set us free and help us to walk in that freedom. Bless us as a fellowship of believers Lord, that we would run that race together, and when one is struggling, another would come alongside, throw their arm over their shoulder, and help them run their race. Use us as a body of believers in the lives of one another and in our community, Jesus, we ask. Amen.